This podcast is a project of the Mass Cultural Council. We believe in the power of culture, the arts, humanities, and sciences to enrich communities, advance equity, and foster creativity. If an angel donor had been there in 2008 and said, don't worry, we will, I will solve your problem, we would still be a musty old historic house because we wouldn't have had to learn from our mistakes and learn from opportunities. Hi, I'm Anita Walker at the Massachusetts Cultural Council, and welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is Susan Whistler. She is the executive director of The Mount, which is Edith Wharton's home in the Berkshires, and welcome to our program. Anita, thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk a little bit about what everybody loves, which is a great turnaround story. But before we do that, there was a fantastic discovery recently to do with Edith Wharton. This is true. This is true. Um, a, a new manuscript hidden in plain sight in, a, uh, in the archives out in Texas. Uh, two scholars from the UK discovered a full-length three-act play written by Edith Wharton in 1901, which is early for her, which clearly shows that long before she tried her hand as a novelist, she was busily establishing herself as a playwright. When we thought we had read everything Edith Wharton had ever written... There you go. Yep. Here's something Here's new. Here's something new. Oh, how exciting. I, what, what did you do the day you found out? Well, actually, I, I got contacted by the scholars. Uh, I got an email out of the blue saying, we've found, we have good news. We found this manuscript. We've written an article. It's about to be published in the Edith Wharton Review, which has a circulation of about 200. And we just were wondering if I thought, did the Mount think that um, there was a wider interest in this story? And I said, oh, my God. Yes, but put on the brakes, because if we pitch to a larger media source, they want to be the ones to break the story. So the Edith Wharton Review sh slowed down their publication date, got in touch with a New Yorker, Rebecca Mead, a wonderful writer for the New Yorker, Rebecca Mead, and she immediately pounced on the story. And so the New Yorker broke it about two weeks later, and it went kind of viral, actually. And I've actually been contacted by a couple of theaters and uh, a producer from the West Coast, and, um, and so it's been lots of fun. And it's a it's an excellent play, and it, it for Wharton it has a pretty happy ending. At least the heroine doesn't die. <laughs> so, um, can you give us a thumbnail what it's about? Uh, sure, it involves euthanasia. So it's a very early treatment of the question of mercy killing, and so. It's set in England. Uh, it involves a second marriage. Uh, the first wife has a broken back and is actually helped, uh, aided to die by the nurse who then marries the husband. And then uh, there's a doctor that tries to blackmail her. The family sort of shuns her, but in the end she gets her just desserts. So it's a it's a good story. Oh wow! Can't wait to see it come to life on stage. But we're going to be doing a reading um, at some point of the of the play. So, but I think it has legs. How exciting. Okay. That was just a little bit of news I couldn't pass up talking to you about as long as we have you here. But what I really wanted to talk to you about is um, the turnaround story at the Mount. Um, it's probably not a secret, uh, certainly not in the Berkshires, that there was a time when the Mount was really struggling financially. And this certainly is a, a situation that presents itself to many nonprofits uh, in the course of their life cycle. But you were presented with that. Um, and tell us the story. Well, it's a it's a it's a long one with lots of twists and turns. But um, uh, and I I really feel I need to start back in two thousand and two, when um, we sort of opened for the first time as a historic house museum, 
um, with a beautifully restored property, but it was an expensive restoration. It cost us about $12 million. And, um, and in the course of that, and in the course of just sort of learning how to operate as a house museum, um, where visitation went from 4,000 to oh, close to 30,000, sort of overnight, but expenses went along with it, um, we had amassed a, a lot of debt. And so um, in 2008, the debt became more than we could sustain. It was about a little over $9 million. And uh, we missed it. It was you know, commercial debt. Uh, we had a bank. Fortunately, it was a local bank. But um, we missed a payment. And it was also right at the height of the kind of recession, or the beginning of the recession. And um, the, the bank uh, issued a foreclosure statement, which um, set everything into a spiral. Um, our, what, what, what was working in our favor is that we owed far more than the property was assessed at. And so the bank had no alternative, really, but to work with us and to give us time to work things out, which we which we did. But it was a long process. There were sort of many sort of interesting twists and turns, the first of which happened in 2009 when um, a woman, a, a very philanthropic and wealthy woman in New York City, is in the office with her doctor saying, we have to do something. And the doctor replies, well, if you really want to do something, I can help. My husband is chairman of the board. So. Oh, serendipity. Serendipity. But I've come to believe that it's not serendipity. It, and it's not random. These moments all along the way that just happened, um, right at the right moment. So this woman, who'd never set foot on the Mount property, gave a gift of 800000 And that allowed us to sit down with the lenders and make sort of our first down payment in exchange for time. So we were always negotiating for time. And that gave us... Um, I believe it was three years. Um, and then uh, during this time period, we at the same time had to be extremely entrepreneurial. Um, right when we were foreclosed upon, you know, we were like a, a great sort of beached whale, silent on a, on a beach. And it was, it was pretty tough and pretty demoralizing. I was having to go to the bank and ask for permission to pay any bill uh, you know, we were a very skeletal staff. And um, and so we just started to figure out how are we going to create vibrancy because we had, because the community, while sorry that the Mount wasn't going to be there, really, you know, wouldn't miss it because they hadn't really been engaged with it. And so we started to really set our minds about how do we sort of loosen up our collar and become sort of more engaged with the community, the community more engaged with us. And so we took out all the velvet ropes in the house, said people can go wherever they want. We said dogs welcome, children welcome. Uh, we started hosting all kinds of um, programming with other cultural partners. So we brought in sculpture, we brought in theater. We started doing jazz on the terrace, uh, which was free. Um, and for the first couple of years, we'd have 30 or 40 people. But you know, it, all of a sudden, it took off. And we now get between four and 600 a night. And um, it's become a happening, and people care. And so that has been a process that has taken, uh, you know, eight or nine years. But it's everything that we think about is about public access and and also accessibility. And so Mass Cultural Council has been extremely helpful with your UP initiative, which we're we're embracing in every way we can. We've got lots to learn, but it's it's been fun to try to think about how to make the property accessible to different um, different sorts of communities. Um,
So let's so let's see. So first so installment to, was so to 2008 go, or nine. So to yeah. just rewind a little bit. So back to that day when you are you know the crisis occurs and you mm -hmm. you like what to do. How was your board engaged? How did they react? And well, uh, the board at that point was very small. We might have it might have been a board of four. I mean, we were a sinking ship and people were jumping, frankly. So, and two of my trustees were in England. So it was a very small board. We were fortunate that we had one trustee who was a, uh, a reorganization specialist. So he was helpful. Um, and, uh, but they, no one was, they, the board was not local. So in terms of how it felt to the staff, it was not unlike feeling like the parents had gone and here we were left to to try to figure out what to do, basically. And so, which is not to say that the board wasn't fully involved. They were, but on a day-to-day -day basis, um, we were pretty much on our own, which was a good thing because we, we, we were lean, we became scrappy, we became entrepreneurial. And in retrospect, when I think about it, and I'll, I'll fast forward to the end, which is that we actually paid off all our debt uh, in 2016. And uh, there's some interesting twists to that too, but if an angel donor had been there in 2008 and said, don't worry, we I will solve your problem, we would still be a musty old historic house because we wouldn't have had to learn from our mistakes and learn from opportunities. And so the fact that we've had to fight our way back has been an incredibly good thing, incredibly good. So have you changed the makeup or the size of the board? The board uh, growth has been phenomenal. So at, at our low, we were at three or four. We're now at 19 and still growing. And a uh, great group of people. Um, but it's a, it's a whole different kettle of fish. And so when we ha not that I'm asking or wishing for debt again, but when one had financial issues, there's sort of one topic of conversation, one focus for a board meeting. Uh, those days are over, and so it, it, sometimes it feels a little bit like herding cats, but it's all good, and their parts are all in the right place, and I couldn't do it without them. Tell about the twists at the end. Uh, well, let's see. So, um, so 2009, we had our first big payment. The next kind of unbelievable thing that happened is I, um, I was interviewed by our local paper and was, I guess, m maybe perhaps more transparent or forthright than most heads of organizations in terms of what our financials look like. I just laid it all on the table. And the, the story is published in the Eagle, and within a half an hour, I receive an email from someone saying, appreciate your transparency. I have a lemon of a stock portfolio. Here, you have it, and see if you can make lemonade. And that was about 300000 which was, uh, so again, um, it's things sort of outside of my control, really, but um, and but but things like this just keep happening. So I, I sort of feel as if Edith has got her hand in in things. And you know, another incredible thing that happened was probably in 2014, a deluge, a massive thunderstorm that drops like seven inches of rain in less than an hour, uh, and creates kind of this flood of water that gathers speed as it comes down the entrance drive and then sort of jumps to the limestone paths and then ends up depositing a tons and tons of debris right in our beautiful flower garden right before the wedding season is about to open. 
sounds like a disaster. Well, we converted it into an extraordinary sort of community opportunity. And so everyone got out and helped to save the perennials, which were like sort of wounded war victims, sort of in an avalanche of mud. And we raised um, enough money to fix the gardens within a matter of days. I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing. And it was a community effort. And that was when real confirmation that we'd sort of turned the corner in terms of uh, finding out ways to make make them out matter to the community. I feel like um, the story that you're sharing is really about um, not holding these precious treasures tight, but right. to really letting the community share the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, and everybody be part of the successes and fixing the failures. Exactly. But I want to ask about you, because you've been there through all of this. And I can only imagine, in fact, I think I almost remember meeting you one of the very first times when I came to Massachusetts, which was about the time when the it was just prior to, it I think. It was just prior. Just and, prior. And we'd been denied for a, a, a Mass Cultural Council grant. I think that's why I came out and to see you. And that was why you came out. And, <laughs> um, and the reason, which was absolutely sound, was that we were financially, I mean, clearly, in a very shaky situation. So how did you personally have the gumption, the the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, a lot of people would have would have walked away at that point and said, this is hopeless. I'm going to go find something else to do. I mean, what was it that you saw that you felt that kept you and kept your spirits? That's a good question. Um, I'd say, A, I love the place and I love my staff. And so tremendous loyalty. Also, I will say a sense of responsibility. I mean, I was there from since 2002. So um, not that I necessarily could have changed the course of anything, but I was witness to, participant in uh, every step that took the organization to the precipice. So um, I felt a real responsibility to, to see it through as best I could. That and I, an unwavering faith in... Um, in the value of the property, the mission, and um, and confidence, always that um, donors were out there. If I could only reach them, and I and I and there were a handful of a few that were extremely loyal and extremely important to the turnaround, um, who are very modest people and don't wish for acknowledgement or recognition. But um, we, I owe them a great debt, as does the Mount. So you actually changed the character of the place, the relationship that it has with people, the way you think about what a historic home should be and how accessible it should be. Have you changed anything else in terms of the way you manage the fiscal side of the operation? Uh, yes, we we have no debt. We have no intention of incurring debt. Um, we are still extremely vulnerable, and I remind you know I have this discussion with my trustees all along, our great vulnerability now, and I'm sure this is probably a lot of my peers out there are probably, I would imagine, in the same boat. It's um, while we receive contributions from many, it's in fact the generosity of a few that is what is sustaining the organization. And that is a vulnerability because they are... Um, you know, life is unpredictable. And if one of these donors, something were to happen or something were to happen to their children, 
or to their spouse, or they, if their life priorities switch and all of a sudden the mount is not a, it's a, big hole, a top goal, that, that is, you know, the loss of one of them is enough to change everything drastically. And that, in fact, is the argument that I took to the bank in 2015 when I made them an offer at a sizable discount, but it was still a, a good offer. I said, look, guys, I, this is the money I have. I have it today. We can close in 30 days, but one death, one sickness, one tragedy, and we've got nothing. So think about it. And they were taken by surprise. They were not expecting that I was going to come in with cash on the table, but I, I, that was all very strategic. And within 24 hours, we had a deal. So, but it was the truth, and they, they made the right choice. So, uh, you know, you can't cut your way to the back to salvation. You had to lean in. You had to program. You had to think about new yeah. ways to engage. Um, transparency and honesty takes you a long way. It does. It really does. It builds I, trust. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it, it relieves um, internal pressure, too. I mean, you're not hiding. You're not playing a double, a double game. You're not two different people. You're not two different institutions. I mean, this is who we are. And um, and so that's been that's been that's been a, a real learning curve. And and the other thing I, I really learned is um, I mean there are people who offered to lend us money to take the bank out, and I refused to accept it. I mean if I don't know how to pay something back, if I don't have a game plan, I'm not taking that money. And um, and knowing that I must protect my donors first, um, and not is is a paramount rule and so I, I you know do not let your donor be a fool uh, and that will pay back big time going forward so you've given another whole chapter another new life to the legacy of Edith Wharton and I feel like she maybe has rewarded you with another gift of another manuscript yes exactly <laughs> that's how I feel so anyway a great story Susan Whistler another one of our creative minds out loud thanks for joining us and thank you Anita. this has been great to learn more about this episode and to subscribe visit creativemindsoutloud.org